Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Out on the Fringe, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized science fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Serial Audio presents Convergence, written by Michael Patrick Hicks, performed for you by Travis Baldry. Episode 3 Chapter 4 The massive dumps of serotonin left me faint and exhausted. The memories clung to me and made me feel dirty. I missed Celine, and my nerves were raw. I wanted to cry. My eyes burned, but no tears came. My ears felt hot, and my cheeks were flushed. I wanted to get fucked up, but not like that. I had made no particular plans to revisit that old life, but the chips were there, and I promised myself I would use only one of them. The addict's motto, just one, then I'll stop. It never works out that way. One always led to one more, and then another one, and another. I was still wearing yesterday's clothes. In the footlocker, I found work gloves, a hat, goggles, and a scarf. I slipped into my work boots, the leather stiff, wrinkled, and worn down. My empty pot sat on a small Bunsen burner. I remembered my mishap the night before and swore. I took a canteen and got in line for the spigot with the rest of the reclamation crew. No guards were at the spigot yet, but the people waiting weren't helping themselves. This was not a self-service station, and the man in the watchtower glared down at us. I knew the guy in front of me, but said nothing. His clothes were stained and wrinkled, not too different from my own. He turned around and nodded. Hafiz. I didn't know his last name. You're looking pretty shitty, Jonah, he said. I nodded back. Couldn't sleep. The words were a thick paste in my mouth. When a guard finally came, the water ran rusty from the spigot. It stunk like a foul egg, but seeing the water reminded me of how thirsty I was. Last night's whiskey had dehydrated me, and a dull ache twitched and throbbed behind my eyes, promising to get worse. We shuffled forward to get our canteens filled. Another guard ordered us to form a line for morning roll call. Then we were led through the security checkpoints and into truck beds for the drive downtown. Most of us were quiet and tired. One guy yakked incessantly while everybody ignored him. Our disinterest didn't stop him, though. He chattered away, talking to himself, but occasionally seeking confirmation from others. Am I right? He would ask, making it sound like a single word. Am I right? I shrugged, not feeling in any shape to judge. Right or wrong? Who was I to say? He asked again. Am I right? I shrugged again, giving him a half-hearted I suppose so nod. My man, he said, and gave me a gentle fist to the shoulder. Then he went on to talk about something else, but I paid no attention. His words were lost on me. My brain was fried. I was good and truly fucked up, but I didn't really want to be anymore, especially not with a day's work ahead of me. The bumpy ride jostled us against one another. Bombing runs had rendered the Pasadena freeway impassable, so the driver took Sunset Boulevard to Figueroa. 
The truck stayed to the cracked and shattered road as best as it could, but eventually the road ended at a crater and the driver had to off-road it. The ride wasn't much different. The PRC employed contractors to make headway with the repairs, but they were slow leviathans riddled with bureaucracy. They gave Sacramento and the Chinatowns to the contractors, who got those areas rebuilt and back up to speed pretty quickly. Los Angeles was different, though. Los Angeles had pockets of snipers and gangs who fancied themselves freedom fighters. They were itching to take on the PRC and the contractors who worked for them. Most work crews going into L.A. were met with violence, and rumor had it that the PRC had lost more soldiers after the war than during it, thanks to the resistance guerrilla tactics throughout the area. Liberty's children operated fiercely but discreetly. Usually they recognized a POW work crew and met them with discretion, maybe even tried to free them. Not always. The violence had led to a dramatic slowdown in the reclamation work, but both sides persisted in their efforts, creating more damage and more dead bodies. Men unloaded from the trucks. PRC gathered at one end of a truck bed to set up a few cups and thermoses of coffee and ice water. A cooler carried sandwiches for each of us for lunch, probably made with hard bread and old meat. I scanned the ruins and checked the skylines. Skyscrapers had once been there, but few were still standing. Most were husks, their walls shattered to reveal broken patchworks of steel girders. The U.S. Bank Tower and Wells Fargo had been decimated in the first wave of attacks. One and two California Plaza were broken stubs of exposed metal, loose wire, and chunks of concrete. Odd, shiny glints of broken glass dotted the surface. I tugged on my work gloves as dump trucks pulled up to the work site, and we formed a line, went through another headcount in case someone had fallen off the truck after leaving Echo Park, and waited for our duty assignments. I was put in a group with three others and waved off down to Hope Street, off Third. One of the dump trucks followed us, inching forward slowly, debris cracking and popping beneath its large wheels. I shifted blocks of concrete and brick, lifting with my knees and twisting to dump the loads into the wheelbarrow next to me. Hafiz gripped the wooden handles and pushed it across the uneven ground, back to the truck, where another man helped him unload. I dug at something hard and yellow, shifting the dirt away to expose part of an M from a McDonald's sign. Half buried was a curved piece, but I couldn't tell what letter it may have come from. C, D, or maybe an O. Whatever. It didn't matter. Just something small to puzzle over, to keep my brain working through the dull labor. I tossed the broken signage into the wheelbarrow, along with some busted chairs that had once formed an outdoor seating arrangement at the court outside of the Wells Fargo Center. We pushed, lifted, and hauled debris. We sweated and swore. Hafiz traded duties with me after a time, giving me a bit of a reprieve while he tackled some of the harder work. What the fuck do you suppose this is? He held up a piece of broken wood with odd lumps. I took it and turned it over in my hands. I swept away some of the gray dust, revealing a smear of green that time and rot had dulled considerably. My fingers brushed against a hard protrusion on the front. Loose flaps of brittle leather hung from the back of the board. I couldn't help but laugh, recognizing the object. Caress of a bird, I said. Hafiz raised an eyebrow at me. Huh? He said, as if I'd lost my mind and were speaking gibberish. It was a sculpture inside Wells Fargo, I said. Joan Miro. He shrugged. Dunno, never heard of it. After another minute of digging, he asked, How you know about that? I'm a historian, I said. It was a private joke, but he nodded, taking me seriously. 
A soldier sat atop a hill of crumbling steps, his back resting against a half wall, the remains of what must have been an office at some point. Beyond him were other walls that had been blown apart, lined up like chipped dominoes. Cracked and broken desks were covered with chunks of drywall, plaster, and curls of pink insulation. A rough semicircle of ceiling had survived the collapse when the upper floors caved in. Our guard was uninterested and bored. He smoked and rested while watching us work. I remembered sitting on those steps with Celine and Mesa, long before the war, eating kettle corn from a food truck vendor that always parked nearby. The Bank of America Center was a ruin. Calder's Four Arches sculpture towered over the remains. Covered in a thick layer of grime, nicked and dinged, the swoops of its arches were slightly cracked and weathered, but it had fared surprisingly well. As the war dragged on, the arches had become a memorial for lost loved ones. A collection of faces and frozen smiles, photographs, their colors faded by time, curled and browned from exposure to the elements, were plastered around the sculpture's red legs. A small boy enjoying birthday cake, a toddler whose face was smeared with pasta sauce, dogs and cats, grandmothers, uncles and aunts, group photos of friends and families, hand-lettered signs asking in large, bold black blocks, Have you seen her? Old pictures and lost lives. I helped Hafiz lift a large, heavy chunk of asphalt. My arms and wrists sore, I gritted my teeth under the strain. Sweat had soaked my shirt, dampening the carpenter's coat I wore over it. I was covered in gray dust from head to toe, my face slick with perspiration. We heaved it into the wheelbarrow and I rolled it to the truck, where three of us handled it a bit more easily. When I got back, we moved a few smaller blocks, taking it slow and easy. The sun was harsh and I caught a glint of metal. I dug around a bit, tossing fist-sized pieces of road and plaster into the wheelbarrow. After a few minutes, I had unearthed a small, feminine hand. Thin fingers of rotting flesh wore a wedding band and long, broken nails. I pushed more debris away, exposing her forearm. Scooping up dirt, pebbles, and rocks in my cupped palms, I found an elbow. Seeking help with another large chunk of rock, Hafiz looked over, saw the remains I had unearthed, and forgot about it. He started digging, too. She was fairly well-preserved, all things considered. Decomposition had started and settled. Bugs had found her and feasted, taking away patches of skin for supper. She was dirty, her crusty hair matted and filthy. Her skin was dried out and stretched taut. Behind her right earlobe was a small metal port. I probed the back of her skull where it joined the neck. I recalled Jamie's message of the previous night, from Alice, to chip any bodies I found. Hafiz grabbed her forearm, trying to pick her up. The skin pulled away, loose and crinkly, and it reminded me of tissue paper as it tore at her elbow and slid down to her wrist in a clump. He fell back, coughing at the sudden stench. You okay? I asked. He nodded. What's the guard doing? He stared past me, over my shoulder. Nothing. I think he's asleep. I turned around to steal a glance. He was slumped up against the wall, a lit cigarette dangling from his lips. I could hear him snoring, even over the grunts of lifting from the other crew members. I prodded roughly at her skin, but couldn't feel much through the thick hide of the work gloves. I pulled one free, then went back to my search. Her skin was pliant and thin. My stomach lurched at the touch. Bile rose in a burning wave along the back of my throat. I turned my head and buried my face in my shoulder to breathe through my mouth. 
I gave myself a few seconds to regroup, then resumed my explorations of her body. I was hunting for a circular mound of calcification, similar to the hard nub buried beneath the flesh of my own neck. What are you doing? Hafiz whispered, leaning close to me. His breath stank, and his body odor, baked under the day's heat, was worse than the smell of the corpse I was poking at. Looking for something, I said. A jagged edge of vertebrae scraped against my index and middle fingers as I pushed through the rot and struck the bone of her spinal column. Thin strands of nerves and stringy muscles sloughed away, and I kept digging, my stomach heaving and threatening to revolt as I pushed upward to the underside of her skull. My fingers fell into a sharp and jagged crater where the back of her head was missing. Her brain had rotted away, been eaten or dried up under the rubble ages ago. My fingers brushed against the thin wire filaments patched into the inside of her skull. They fell away in loose bundles. I pulled back, hooking my thumb and fingers around the data port behind her ear. I tugged it away easily, a thin collection of cords coming with it. I swore under my breath, then pressed hard against her thin skin, working my way back around to the underside of her skull and the back of her neck. I pressed hard and found nothing. Down farther, maybe? This was taking too long. Worried that the guard would wake and catch me, I was racing against an invisible clock. My forehead was soaked in sweat, and dark, wet circles were growing out from my armpits. I poked around her shoulders, pushing my fingers beneath the collar of her blouse, and found something hard against her shoulder blade. My fingernails tore into the flesh, tracing the outline of a squarish deposit soldered to the bone. What's he doing? I asked. Opening my mouth gave my stomach its cue, and I fought back a convulsive heave, a thick wad of bile lodged in my throat. Hafiz looked at me quizzically, then looked down at her and back up at me. The guard, I said, a twinge of anger creeping into my voice. Nothing, nothing, he said. The metallic square was hard and wafer thin. I found a small bump at the edge of the device. Around a slope of calcified mineral deposits on the bone was a collection of nanofilaments that would branch off toward the spine and ride up into her skull, networking the data entry port into her brain and the small storage device on her shoulder. A small latch kept the unit sealed, and I had to jam my thumbnail into the crevice to pry it apart. Inside was a tiny data chip, smaller than the fingernail on the woman's pinky. I carefully dislodged it, turning back to check on the guard. Still asleep. Nobody else was paying as much attention. The crews working in small clusters, spread out in zones, were focused on their own work, not me and Hafiz. I pocketed the chip and replaced the lid. I could do nothing about the damage I'd caused to her flesh, but with the pattern of injuries etched across her back and head, what I had done was hardly discernible. A loud, crackling noise from the radio woke the guard. I wiped my hand in the dust, trying to lose the gore as best I could, then wiped it on my pants and replaced the glove. It felt funky and damp. I threw more chunks of concrete into the wheelbarrow and Hafiz followed my lead. We good? I asked him. He nodded. Sure. I didn't think I would have to worry about him. Body, I hollered out and waved to the guard. He came over to inspect, then radioed for the meat wagon. The flatbed took a few minutes to grind its way over to us, and when it did, Hafiz lifted her a bit more gingerly, working his hands under her arms while I took her ankles, hoping the squishy skin of her legs didn't suddenly loosen and puddle against my grip. We heaved her into the truck. Four bodies had already been collected from the other sites. I looked up at the sky, trying to gauge the time by the sun. It had to have been close to noon, if not past. I sponged away the sweat with the forearm of my coat and thought about ditching it. 
We'd all heard stories about some poor bastard who'd scraped his bare arm at a cleanup site and got an infection bad enough that his arm had to be amputated. I'd never met anybody who actually knew the guy, but what difference did that make, really? So we all wore our coats, sweated our balls off, and kept our arms, legs, toes, and fingers. My hunch about the time was confirmed a few minutes later when the guard announced our lunch break. We lined up, went through another head count, and accepted the rations handed to us. A cup of water, a stale sandwich, and an apple. I wandered back to the steps and sat near the four arches. I'd always enjoyed it there. Even after so long, I could smell the fresh popcorn and the hint of lemon and Celine's perfume. Her black hair would have shined under this sun, glossy and waxy smooth. She would have sat next to me, our knees touching and arms brushing as we ate and made small talk. She would have been wearing a skirt for work, and I would have lingered over the curve of her calves and the lines of her legs beneath the dark fabric. She would have accused me of ignoring her as she talked about her day, and then I would be lost in the deep green waters of her eyes, only half listening. Mesa, so small, and her skin untouched by the stab of an inker's needles, would be a few steps below, interrupting us with incessant strings of questions. Celine would smile and answer, always so patiently, with the love pouring off her. And a part of me would realize that I didn't belong there, that this should not be my life. I would feel guilty or depressed, and she would pick up on it instantly. If she asked me what was wrong, I would lie with a forced smile across my lips. I wanted to shove those memories away, but I couldn't. After the previous night's dreamer's session, they were still too fresh and opened too many old wounds. I tried to eat, but the dry sandwich was dusty in my mouth. I'd lost my appetite, even though I hadn't had solid food since the night before. I forced myself to eat the rest and drank the water, feeling dehydrated and dizzy. All it did was make me thirstier, so I went back down to the truck to refill my cup. Damn it, the guard mumbled in a thick accent. His English was broken, and he spoke as if he had cotton in his mouth. His words lacked enunciation and were jumbled together. Tamets, it sounded like. I crossed the street, back over to the Wells Fargo Center, where I climbed over and around the debris, then up the steps. There used to be a life there, shopping and dining. But the entire block was bare, skeletal, and dirty. A part of a wall remained, along with a sign that said, Nick and Steph's Steakhouse. Celine and I had eaten there a few times, usually before catching a show at Amundsen Theater, ages ago, back when we were dating, when I was still trying to impress her. I remembered the perfectly grilled, dry-aged New York strip from there. I could nearly taste the hints of mesquite and oak in the flame-licked meat. My mouth watered, and I couldn't remember the last time I'd had steak, or a nice, smooth, dry red wine. The restaurant was a shell. Broken, upturned tables and shattered chairs, cracked slate floor, broken wooden beams. The walls were covered in black mold and stained from water damage. The bar was in ruins and cracked in half. Exploded bottles that had once held thousands of dollars in liquor littered the floor. I saw nothing I could take back to Jamie and certainly nothing I could idle ten minutes away with. I got back to work, sick of the past and the discord of memories. My hand was tacky and uncomfortable in the glove. I drained my cup of water, tossed it into the wheelbarrow, and loaded that with as much as I could. When I lifted wrong, I felt a sharp pop in my back. Muscles seized up and I sat down, sore, throbbing, and angry. 
I gritted my teeth until it passed, and Hafiz sat with me, nursing a cup of water. You okay? He asked. My back, I grunted. Take a few, he said. It's all good. He went down for another cup of water and brought me back one. The pain was subsiding, but the rest of the day was going to be rough. I could work through it, but the next day was going to be worse. He passed me the cup, and I gave him my thanks. The soldier's radio crackled, and he clicked a button, said some words, got another crackle, and said something else. He blew his whistle, and we reformed for another headcount. Hafiz helped me to my feet. His grip was strong, but I shrugged him off when he tried to help me down the steps to Hope Street, where we all stood at attention. Never making eye contact with us, the guard did his count, making little ticks on a piece of paper on his clipboard. He said something, followed by a grunt of approval, and put us back to work. The afternoon sun bored down on us. I wiped sweat from my scalp. The gloves were gritty against the stubble. We worked hard and the knots in my back began to bunch up. Every square inch of me hurt. The radio squawked, interrupting the quiet labor, and a rushed string of gibberish came through the speaker. The PRC responded, his face screwed up in confusion. I couldn't make out any of the words, but something in his eyes and the way he held himself meant trouble. A new knot twisted, this time in my stomach, its claws working into my chest. A worker from another crew shouted something at him. Hafiz turned to see what the commotion was about. The guard did, too. The crew had found another woman buried under a light pile of debris. Things were happening quickly. A buzz in the air made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, causing my skin to crawl. One of the workers, a young guy, probably still in his teens and new to the labor, bent to pick her up. He hooked his hands under her armpits and lifted with his knees. The explosion tore out from under her. Shrapnel buzzed by, a hot sting slicing through the bridge of my nose and cheek. I fell to my knees, burying my head under my arms, watching between a slit of skin. My eyes struggled to piece together the horror. Screams, limbs disconnected from bodies. The boy who had found the corpse had taken most of the blast, but it hadn't saved the rest of his crew. A face split down the middle by a long, jagged strip of metal. Half a leg tipped over, the sole of his work boot smoking, a gory stump where a knee had once been. A coil of intestine had slopped against the piles of plaster, wood, and concrete in a wheelbarrow. One man sat, dazed, watching blood pour from his elbows, where his arms used to be, while he bled from the nose and ears. His shock-glazed eyes moved back and forth between each gushing wound, struggling to figure out what had happened and where his arms had gone. The PRC guard hadn't been close enough to the blast to take any damage. He looked back at me, then came toward me. His mouth opened, and then his jaw exploded off his face while he was mid-step. It pushed him back on his heels, but he kept walking, painfully oblivious because it had happened so quickly. Not even a second later, a small crater punched into his forehead, blowing his brains out the back of his skull. I heard the dim dual bangs a moment later, realizing my eardrums were probably gone. I scrabbled for cover, hooking my fingers into Hafiz's collar and dragging him down. He followed me, moving quickly in a half-crouch, searching desperately for shelter. His nose and ears were bleeding. Pieces of concrete were pebbled into his face and neck like tiny pieces of buckshot. Snipers, I said over the buzzing whine that filled my ears. His mouth was moving, but his words were leagues away. We crawled behind a thick concrete pillar that had fallen across the steps outside the Bank of America. 
It offered thicker shelter than the four arches. I risked a quick glance, hoping to catch a peek of a sniper, but the bank was too squat to offer any really good vantage points. Over my shoulder, the buildings were taller, but not incredibly so. All the high-rises and skyscrapers had been reduced to stubs. Could be a few good spots, though. I hoped for a glint of sunlight catching off a scope, but saw nothing. My face ached, felt wrong. I brushed at my cheek, found something hard, and fought to get a grip on it. I pulled and was rewarded with a sharp, searing pain. Pinched between my fingers was a long, rough sliver of bone that wasn't mine. Hafiz was scared, near panic and in total shock. I smacked his arm, pointed toward the bank. We could maybe find shelter in there. He shook his head, obviously afraid to move. I understood, but being stationary was not an option. The whine was lessening and I could clearly hear volleys of gunshots. Snipers were killing the other crews, cleaning up, making a nice little massacre of all this. The gun, Hafiz said, his voice breathless. He pointed to the guard. I shook my head. It's only a few yards, he argued. We have to go, I said. But Hafiz screwed up his face into an angry expression. Apparently, he didn't understand that heading down meant certain death and that I was trying to save his life. I urged him to his feet, taking his hands in mine. Come on, goddammit, I yelled. I hauled him to his feet, and he worked his legs to help me out by getting his boots under him. Blood splattered across my face and chest, and I was blinded by gore. I stumbled back in shock and fell on my ass. My gloves were rough, too hard to clean the muck from my face. I pulled them off, palmed away thick puddles filled with hard pieces of bone, and forced my eyes open. Part of his skull was missing. An eye had been blasted away. Some of his brain had splashed onto my chest, modeling my carpenter's coat with gore. Half crawling, half trying to stand, ignoring the sharp, painful protests riding up alongside my spine, I bolted toward the half wall and, staying low, jumped over it into what used to be the building's lobby. A bullet broke the floor tiles ahead of me. The second sniper, unused to chasing prey, had led too far ahead. I zigzagged, making each step unpredictable, a crazy sort of dance. Bullets came faster, and their strikes became as erratic as I was trying to be. My foot lifted, but I stumbled in pain. There was a hole in the back of my thigh and another coming out the front. I thought the bullet had missed the bone, but it hurt like a motherfucker. I rolled, but even that was a struggle. I dodged to the next bullet, preventing it from going into my head. I had become easy prey ready to be taken down, but I didn't want to make it that easy. I slid behind a squat, thick leg of a plastic office directory. My heart was racing, and I was trying very hard to ignore the throbbing pain in my leg. The countertop above me exploded. Flying plastic stung the back of my head. The sniper had resorted to taking pot shots, trying to rattle me out of hiding or maybe get lucky and tag me again. I didn't have many places to hide. A bank of elevators went nowhere. If I tried to make a break for the offices, I would end up dead before I got anywhere else. I was trapped, and a cold sweat broke out across my face and back, either from the pain or the fear. I had to do something, but I had no idea what. I could stand up and take the bullet, let it pluck out my heart or tear through my head. End it all. Fuck it. They came in cautiously, but swiftly. Guns pointed forward, tucked close to their bodies, they rushed in on each other's heels, spreading out to cover the angles of the room and protect one another from attack. Their entry was well practiced from years of tactical training. 
They came around the directory, clearing the room, making sure I was alone. A quick once-over deemed me a non-threat. Weaponless, bleeding, and crippled, I certainly didn't feel very threatening. I was more woozy than anything else. I smirked. What's so funny? One asked, his gun pointed at me, ready to use it. I almost couldn't help but laugh. He stepped forward onto my injured leg and ground the tread of his boot into my skin. Just that mop top of yours, tough guy. He smashed the butt of his beretta into the side of my face. It hurt and it loosened a few teeth, but he stepped off my leg and the pain instantly lessened. While I was bent over, waiting for the ringing in my head to dissolve, he slapped something against the side of my head and my skull buzzed with a familiar tingle of electronics mating. The buzzing pushed deeper into my head, even as the pain of the pistol whipping dissolved, and the neural net wrapped around my brain went dark. All of the men wore urban camo, and each carried the distinct weight of military bearing. They even had American flag patches stitched on their shoulders. Could be some unit that had gone AWOL after the fall and stayed behind enemy lines to carry on the good fight. Could be a militia who fancied themselves freedom fighters and had raided an army surplus store or ripped off a defunct supply caravan or military depot. Could be a bunch of assholes role-playing. A tall black man with close-cropped hair and thick stacks of muscle stepped forward, put a hand on my guard's shoulder, and eased him back, making him step away. He waved over another man who knelt beside me. I realized he was a medic with a small black box of field dressings and long needles. The medic took a pair of sharp, short scissors and cut away my pant leg above the wound, then jabbed a needle in above the gunshot. Morphine plunged into my system with an icy rush that made my eyelids heavy. His movements were rapid but precise. He wrapped my leg in gauze to staunch the bleeding, then moved away. You the last of them? The black guy asked, his eyes and chin indicating the dead men outside. Guess so, I said. The fact of the matter was I really didn't care. If he was going to kill me, he would have done it already. Probably wouldn't have had my leg wrapped either. Let's get this over with. A smile flickered across his face, and I guessed that was a hard thing for him to come by. He had a gruff voice and stony hands that cinched around my wrists with the strength of a vice when he helped me to my feet. There you go, he said. I stood on one foot, gamely, not daring to put any weight on my other leg. One of the soldiers shoved thickly gloved fingers into my pockets and extracted a small collection of memory chips I carried with me. I'm with you, I said, my tongue thick and heavy, slurring my words into an incoherent jam. Something that wasn't exactly confusion crossed his eyes. Even under the morphine spell, I could tell something was not right. His urban camo was new, crisp and clean. I tried to commit this fact to memory. My brain was mush and the world was fading quickly. I was groggy, whipped beyond exhaustion. I welcomed the collapse. Then he said, bag him up, and the world went dark. Chapter 5 Memseek 0500015789 Anger stood across the table between us, its thickness fouling the air. The darkness was almost a relief when the lights went out. Power outages in Los Angeles weren't exactly new, and neither of us thought much of it. We had bigger problems, mostly each other. The energy crisis had been going on for five years, and rolling blackouts left a couple million households without power at any given time. Oil shortages had sent prices through the roof. Because of that, our ever-growing debt, 
and annual theatrical displays of government shutdowns, the U.S. dollar was worthless. In four or five hours, the lights and air conditioning would click back on after some pressure on the grid was relieved. Or so we thought, anyway. The tension between Celine and me was interrupted by a piercing rumble that was too close overhead. The noise pulled me away from the table, to the window, and then outside, as if that could change what I was seeing. The noise grew louder as a jumbo jetliner passed above us, flying far too low but missing our neighborhood. It disappeared behind a rise of land, but the cataclysmic results were thunderous. The acrid stink of burning rubber and scorched metal clung to the air. Thick, black plumes of smoke rose in the distance. The lights never came back on. A few of our neighbors had pet human droids that they used for yard work and household maintenance. The droning sounds of lawnmowers and weed whackers had dropped off into nothingness, and the robots stood or crouched where they had died, silent, synthetic sentinels of a now-dead age. Where's Mesa? I asked, my voice still tinged with bitterness. I stood on our country porch, leaning against the rails, watching the smoke. Neighbors were starting to gather, their curiosity not yet turning to the fear that this was the end of their world. But the change was quickly catching up to us all. Many pointed skyward, following the white contrails and the dying light as it led to the pillar of smoke rising from the ground. I'm not getting any signals at all, someone said, prompting others to nervously fidget with the data entry ports behind their ears and on their forearms. Some were disconnected for the first time since birth and were starting to panic from the sudden, strange sensation of isolation. Celine's fingers moved between mine, her hand tightening. I could feel her fear, which mimicked mine. The air felt haunted, and I sensed that something was deeply, strangely wrong. A horrifying otherness that went beyond a mere power outage. In between heartbeats, the world had changed. Where's Mesa? I asked again, my annoyance with both of them curdling in my gut. Out of friends, she said. The worry in her eyes was growing. Her body curled against mine, her hands clinging around my waist. I put my arms around her and kissed the top of her head. A few hours before, I had been bothered by her mere presence and started a fight. With the end of the world blooming around us, I couldn't even remember why I'd been angry with her. The growing confusion and worry worsened as night fell. Whatever disquiet had grown between Celine and me, whatever fractures I may have introduced to our marriage, were suddenly mundane and unimportant. I didn't know what was happening, but I told her everything would be fine. Everything is going to be okay, I said hoping that it would be. Then I told her that I loved her and held her close, hoping Mesa would have the good sense to come home soon. She was getting rebellious, going out late, staying out late, and walking out on us in the middle of talks with her because she decided she didn't need to hear whatever we were saying, telling us to fuck off, trying to figure out how far she could push things, trying to take it further and further each time. She spent most of her energy being angry, yelling and telling us how she was an adult so we couldn't stop her. We'd caught her smoking and drinking. She'd left condoms lying around her bedroom, still sealed in their packages. They'd been given to her by her school administrators who wanted her to be safe. She got off on torturing us with it, putting it on our face and rubbing our noses in it. I should try to find her, I untangled myself from Celine. A part of her, the needy part, looked wounded. I went to the car, slid into the driver's seat, and pressed my thumb to the small black plate on the dash. It did nothing. I sat back in the seat, realizing the car's unresponsive biometrics were fried. 
I brought up my comnet, the retinal display filled with local server errors and host unavailable messages. No car, no power, no connections, no communications. Who was she with? I asked. Celine was distracted and didn't answer for a minute. Macy? She said uncertainly. We'll have to walk. Car's dead. What's happening? I didn't have any answers. I took her hand and started walking. We crossed the street, heading two blocks north, over to Macy's. We knocked on the door, but nobody answered. No answer at Linda's or Jennifer's. Her boyfriend, Tom, answered when we came to his door, but he hadn't seen her. He told us they'd fought two nights before and hadn't talked since. She wouldn't take his calls and had refused his attempts at messaging. If you hear from her, call us, Celine said. Then, looking at the darkened houses around us and apparently remembering her unresponsive comnet, she must have felt stupid and her face flushed. Yeah, I guess you can't do that, can you? She gave him a small, half-hearted laugh, and he closed the door, sullen. The absence of a working comnet was growing into a palpable void. We couldn't raise Mesa and had no way of contacting her friends other than by foot, and that was getting us nowhere. Maybe you should go back home, I said. One of us should be there if she comes back. I can keep looking. We knew a couple other friends she hung out with, but they were all in the opposite direction. We would be passing our house anyway. We were walking down Burbank to get to White Oak and back home when a clopping noise rushed up from behind us. A mounted police officer rode up beside us. There's a curfew in effect now, folks. We ask that you get inside immediately. He'd used cop speaking, saying we, even though it was only him and his horse. Celine and I were still a mile and a half away from our house on Kittredge, and I told him so. Get inside as soon as you can. Please, we're looking for our daughter, Celine said. She stepped toward the horse, and it whinnied, taking a step back. She reached for the officer's arm in a mother's plea. Please step away, ma'am. She didn't. She moved forward, crying and grasping. Her panic unraveled as she tried to make him understand the urgency of our plight. Help us, please. You have to help us. Our daughter is missing. The horses of the mounted unit were used for crowd control and had been trained to deal with noise, like gunfire and shouting, as well as smoke and rowdy demonstrators, so they were used to people. But the Arabian was unsettled by whatever vibe Celine was giving off and was trying to get away from her. But she kept getting closer, aggravating it even more. Despite any kind of training, an animal always has a basic instinct that can never be overcome, and this horse sensed something in the air, something that had it spooked. I tried to pull Selene away, but I was a step too slow. She got a hold of the officer's arm, invading the horse's space, making it rear. The cop tumbled off and hit the pavement hard. The horse was on its back legs, kicking with its front, its hooves getting dangerously close to her face. I grabbed Selene around the waist, yanked her away before she got kicked. The cop was getting his feet back under him, his expression equal parts dazed and pissed off. You crazy bitch, he said. Celine was struggling in my arms, crying and panicking. Her small fists pounded my chest, ordering me to let her go. She slapped my face and it surprised me, made me relax too much, enough for her to break free. She ran to the officer, but he had his hand up, ordering her back. Please, Celine was screaming. My daughter, we can't find her. Step the fuck back, now. You have to help us. I'm not warning you again. Step back and lay down on the ground. His voice hitched. His horse was screaming, rearing up on its hind legs and breathing loudly, its hackles raised. Celine was too distraught to think straight, and none of us had any fucking clue what was going on. 
Gunfire rang out in the distance and fresh smoke rose into the air. I told you to get back. She stumbled forward, tears lining her face. Please listen, you have to listen. Stepping forward, he told her to get back again. He pulled himself taller, squared his shoulders, and pushed his chest out, the promise of a threat in his eyes. His hand went to his belt and pulled out a stocky black device with yellow striping. He fired and she screamed, jerking away. She fell to the ground, but he kept his finger on the trigger, sending jags of electricity through the taser wires and into her body. 50,000 volts, 19 pulses a second, punched into her. Get down on the ground, he yelled at me. I raised my hands, slowly lowering myself onto my knees. Down, he yelled again. People were lining up on the street, watching the spectacle. We knew some of them from PTA meetings, neighborhood garage sales, and block parties. They stood there, whispering and watching, hands over their mouths. Nobody dared move or speak too loudly. I flattened myself on the street, my arms spread out, head hooked at an odd angle so that I could see what was happening. Celine's body relaxed, then stayed still. The horse had calmed down since the threat of violence was passed. I waited for my wife to move, but she didn't. She made no sound, no groans of pain, no whimpers, none of the crying I had become used to over the last few hours. I kept waiting for her to move. The officer rolled her onto her stomach, straddled her, pulled her arms back and handcuffed her. He only had the one set and seemed confused about what to do with me. No car, no handcuffs, no radio to call for backup. He tried to pick her up, but she was dead weight. He thought she was being funny or trying to resist. Come on, he told her and dropped her. He checked her pulse, his mouth opening to a tiny O. Then he looked at me. He had a funny look in his eyes. Confusion and maybe sympathy, but not all the way. He was young, probably new to the force, but not so new that he was unhardened or shocked. He uncuffed her and slipped them back on his belt. He rolled her over onto her back again, surprisingly gently. He didn't know what else to do or how to handle the situation. Far off in the distance, the first faint sounds of gunfire rang out, the single reports of pistols and the rat-a-tat-tat -tat of automatic weapons fire. He stared at me again before mounting his horse. His mouth opened, closed, and opened again. Then, without a single word, he rode off. I stayed on the ground until I no longer heard the galloping of hooves on concrete. Celine's body was still, and I crawled to her on my hands and knees. I was sobbing, yelling at her to come back to me. I cradled her, rocking back and forth with her corpse held tight against me. She had died from what was euphemistically called excited delirium. It sounded a lot better than it actually was. It used to be a cute, legally and medically aesthetic way to say somebody had overdosed on cocaine, but it had grown into a catch-all phrase used in autopsy reports for people who were tasered to death. Celine's panic had ratcheted up her catecholamine levels, and her blood pressure was high. Her fight-or-flight reflexes had increased her heart rate as she tried to get the officer's help. Those things never mixed well with the introduction of sudden, intense jolts of electricity, and they combined to trigger cardiac dysrhythmia. She had gone into cardiac arrest and died. That was when it all started to break down.
when society started to crumble around us and the world changed. In the days and months that followed, reports trickled in, carried by word of mouth, about the lives lost in Hawaii in the first waves of the attack and the U.S. carriers that were sunk off Pearl Harbor. Downtown, a small sleeper cell had detonated a non-nuclear EMP bomb. Power went out, cars died, and people were trapped underground in immobile subway cars. The civilian infrastructure screeched to a halt. Internet servers went offline, although the cybernetic implants in our heads and some of the newer peripheral devices were shielded well enough that they remained undamaged. With nothing to connect to, though, the chunks of metal and strings of wire were useless. But all that was noise. For me, Celine was the first loss, the first victim. The world fell apart with her death, and the world was inextricably different because she was gone. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Out on the Fringe as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.